Jimmy Akin's Mysterious World is brought to you by the StarQuest Production Network and is made possible by our many generous patrons. If you'd like to support the podcast, please visit sqpn.com slash give. You're listening to episode 236 of Jimmy Akin's Mysterious World, where we look at mysteries from the twin perspectives of faith and reason. In this episode, we're talking about the Loch Ness Monster. I'm Dom Bettinelli, and joining me today is Jimmy Akin. Hey, Jimmy. Howdy, Dom. In 1933, worldwide attention focused on a long, thin lake in northern Scotland. The lake was Loch Ness, and the world was riveted by reports that there was a monster living in it. Since then, numerous people have flocked to the lake in hopes of seeing the creature. Some came away with impressive pictures and even motion picture footage of what they saw. There have even been scientific surveys to look for the Loch Ness Monster. One theory is that the monster may be a plesiosaur that has survived from the age of dinosaurs. How can we explain the monster sightings? What have the scientific surveys found? And does the Loch Ness Monster really exist? Well, that's what we'll be talking about on this episode of Jimmy Akin's Mysterious World. Jimmy, why did you want to do this mystery? I grew up as a kid in the 1970s, and the Loch Ness Monster was a big thing then. There were all kinds of books and TV shows about strange phenomena like UFOs and Bigfoot and the Loch Ness Monster. I remember when in the 1970s, Time Magazine uh, reported on sonar readings that had been taken in the loch, and that seemed to indicate something was down there. They also published a photo of what looked like a diamond shaped fin that an underwater camera had captured, which was brand new scientific evidence. In addition to all the earlier photos that had been taken, like the famous one known as the surgeon's photo, which you see in this episode's artwork. Now, the Loch Ness Monster is sometimes called a cryptid. Not everyone may be familiar with that term. So what are cryptids? The Greek word kryptos means hidden, and so a cryptid is a hidden animal, one that isn't known to modern science. They're studied by a field known as cryptozoology, and people who try to find such creatures are known as cryptozoologists. If Bigfoot and the Loch Ness Monster exist, then they would be cryptids. And do cryptids exist? Oh, yeah, most definitely. In fact, it's estimated that most of the world's organisms have not yet been discovered and scientifically classified. So probably most animals are cryptids. But there are reasons that they aren't discovered. Uh, Some of them live deep in the oceans, which we've barely explored because humans don't have easy access to it. Other animals live deep in jungles where scientists haven't yet conducted extensive surveys. And many, many, many cryptids are tiny organisms, microscopic ones that haven't yet been put under a microscope. But every year, multiple new species of animals are discovered, and so every year, some cryptids are brought out into the light and documented. The question is, what about the famous cryptids like Bigfoot and the Loch Ness Monster? Yeah, we talked about Bigfoot way back in Episode 3 of Mysterious World, uh, and I hope so, but will we be talking about him in the future? Yeah, we will. Uh, Episode 3 was right at the beginning of the show, and since then, I found a bunch of new resources, so there are new things to discuss. We've also talked about other cryptids, uh, or at least things that are sometimes considered monsters, like werewolves in episode 90, the fearsome drop bears of episode 148, 
uh, Zombies in episodes 159 and 160, and of course, recently Shadow People in episode 221. And we saw in those episodes there can be a real-world basis for such legendary creatures, and we'll be discussing more cryptids and monsters, including Bigfoot again, in the future. So let's talk about today's cryptid. First, let's talk about Loch Ness. Where is it, and what's it like? As the name uh, suggests, Loch Ness is a lake in Scotland. Loch is simply a Scottish word for lake, so Loch Ness is Lake Ness. And since I'm a language nerd, I will be seeking to pronounce the out on the end of Loch. In standard English accents, this gets pronounced with a K sound, you know, Loch. But we get so few chances to use guttural consonants like in English, and Scottish pronunciation happens to have one. I love pronouncing guttural consonants, so I intend to. Go for it. So that's a shout out to all of our Scottish listeners, though I may forget from time to time, and I beg their indulgence for any pronunciation infelicities, since my native accent is one of the American accents, but at least I'm making an effort. As far as where Loch Ness is, it's located in the Scottish Highlands, which is in the northern part of Scotland, and they're called Highlands because it's a mountainous region. The Scottish Highlands are distinguished from the Scottish Lowlands, which are in the southern part of the country and are not as mountainous. Uh, Cities like Glasgow, Edinburgh, and Aberdeen are in the lowlands, and the biggest city in the Highlands is Inverness, which is connected to Loch Ness. Um, The name Inverness means mouth of the river Ness, so Inverness is where the river Ness empties into the North Sea. If you go southwest from Inverness on the River Ness for about six miles, you'll arrive at the northeast corner of Loch Ness. So Loch Ness is just six miles away by river. And what about Loch Ness itself? What is it like? Well, it's very long. In fact, it's 23 miles long, but it's also very narrow. Uh, Much of it is just a mile wide, although at one point it gets up to 1.7 miles wide. Its surface area is only 21.8 miles because of how thin it is, and that makes it the second largest loch in Scotland. Uh, The largest is Loch Lomond, which has a surface area of 22 miles, so Loch Lomond is just a smidge bigger. Loch Ness is also quite deep. Its average depth is 433 feet, although it does get down to 755 feet at its lowest point. This gives it a cubic volume of 1.8 cubic miles, and it is the largest loch in the British Isles by the amount of water it contains. Loch Ness also has a single island in it, which is known as Cherry Island, and this island is actually artificial. It was apparently built during the Iron Age, which in Scotland was between 800 BC and AD 400. Why is Loch Ness so long and thin? Because of the geological formation it's in. During the last Ice Age, which ended around 12,000 years ago, or about 10,000 BC, glaciers uh, dug down into a geological fault line that cuts right across northern Scotland, and this produced a huge valley, or glen. So today, it's known as the Great Glen, meaning the Big Valley. Being a deep valley, various places in the Great Glen filled up with water when the glaciers melted, and one of those places is now Loch Ness. 
because Loch Ness is in a valley cut through the mountains, its surface is actually 52 feet above sea level. But the water flows downhill through the River Ness until it flows out into the North Sea at Inverness. The water is also really murky and hard to see through because there's a lot of peat in the surrounding soil. So there's lots of particulate matter floating in the loch, and that causes its waters to be dark, something that makes your life interesting if you're trying to find a monster in it. Now, we said that the Loch Ness Monster came to public attention in 1933. What happened in that year? On May 2nd, the local twice-a-week newspaper known as the Inverness Courier published an article with the headline, Strange Spectacle on Loch Ness. What was it? The article read, Loch Ness has for generations been credited with being the home of a fearsome-looking monster, but somehow or other the water kelpie, as this legendary creature is called, has always been regarded as a myth, if not a joke. Now, however, comes the news that the beast has been seen once more, for on Friday of last week, a well-known businessman who lives in Inverness and his wife, a university graduate, when motoring along the north shore of the loch not far from Arbriachan Pier, were startled to see a tremendous upheaval on the loch, which previously had been as calm as the proverbial mill pond. The lady was the first to notice the disturbance, which occurred fully three-quarters of a mile from the shore, and it was her sudden cries to stop that drew her husband's attention to the water. There, the creature disported itself, rolling and plunging for fully a minute, its body resembling that of a whale, and the water cascading and churning like a simmering cauldron. Soon, however, it disappeared in a boiling mass of foam. Both onlookers confessed that there was something uncanny about the whole thing, for they realized that there here was no ordinary denizen of the depths, because, apart from its enormous size, the beast, in taking the final plunge, sent out waves that were big enough to have been caused by a passing steamer. The watchers waited for almost half an hour in the hope that the monster, if such it was, would come to the surface again, but they had seen the last of it. Questioned as to the length of the beast, the lady stated that, judging by the state of the water in the affected area, it seemed to be many feet long. It will be remembered that a few years ago, a party of Inverness anglers reported that when crossing the loch in a rowing boat, they encountered an unknown creature whose bulk, movements, and the amount of water displaced at once suggested that it was either a very large seal, a porpoise, or indeed the monster itself. But the story which duly appeared in the press received scant attention and less credence. In fact, most of those people who aired their views on the matter did so in a manner that bespoke feelings of the utmost skepticism. It should be mentioned that so far as is known, neither seals nor porpoises have ever been known to enter Loch Ness. Indeed, in the case of the latter, it would be utterly impossible for them to do so. And as to the seals, it is the fact that though they have on rare occasions been seen in the River Ness, their presence in Loch Ness has never been definitely established. This newspaper story on the sighting was what brought the Loch Ness Monster to public attention, but the Loch Ness Monster craze didn't take off just yet, and you'll note that the phrase Loch Ness Monster didn't appear in the piece. The news story also didn't give the witnesses names, but it was later learned that they were John and Aldi McKay who ran a nearby hotel. 
in the first story, there was very little description of the creature, which the two witnesses saw from three quarters of a mile away. Uh, The paper said that it had a body something like a whale, that it was playing in the water by leaping about, kind of like a porpoise or seal. And based on the water it displaced with its final plunge, Mrs. McKay estimated that it was many feet long. And when did we get a more detailed description of the creature? During the very next sighting, which occurred in July, this time a man from London named George Spicer and his wife were motoring around the lock, which means driving in their automobile around it, when they saw the monster. Mr. Spicer then wrote a letter to the Inverness Courier, which was published in August. The letter was prefaced with three headings. First, Visitors Experience Near Foyers. Second, Land and Water Animal. And third, is it the Loch Ness Monster? It was this heading in the letter column that cemented the phrase Loch Ness Monster in the public mind, and in due course, the monster was nicknamed Nessie. The letter itself read, Dear Sir, I have just returned from a motoring holiday in Scotland and am writing to inform you that on Saturday afternoon, 22nd July last, whilst traveling along the east side of Loch Ness between Dora's and Foyer's Hotel, about halfway in fact, I saw the nearest approach to a dragon or prehistoric animal that I have ever seen in my life. It crossed my road about 50 yards ahead and appeared to be carrying a small lamb or animal of some kind in its mouth. It seemed to have a long neck, which moved up and down in the manner of a scenic railway, and the body was fairly big with a high back. But if there were any feet, they must have been of the web kind. And as for a tail, I cannot say, as it moved so rapidly. And when we got to the spot, it had probably disappeared into the loch. Length from six feet to eight feet, and very ugly. I am wondering if you can give me any information about it, and am enclosing a stamped address envelope, anticipating your kind reply. Whatever it is, and it may be a land and water animal, I think it should be destroyed, as I am not sure whether I had been quite close to it, I should have cared to have tackled it. It is difficult to give a better description as it moves so swiftly, and the whole thing was so sudden. There is no doubt that it exists. Yours, etc., G. Spicer. I remember reading about this account in books when I was a kid, and one of them had a drawing of the Spicers in their motor car with what looked like a small brontosaurus with horns or knobs on its head, crossing the road in front of them with a small lamb in its mouth. In any event, Mr. Spicer said he saw the animal at a much closer distance than the previous two witnesses. Uh, Spicer saw it only 150 feet away from him. The animal moved swiftly, indicating it was capable of moving on land and coming on land in the first place. It was carrying a lamb or small animal in, in its mouth, indicating it was either a carnivore or an omnivore. It was about seven feet long. It had a large body with a high back and a long neck that bobbed up and down. He didn't notice a tail. He also didn't see its feet, but speculated that they may have been webbed. Mr. Spicer also thought it looked very ugly, and he thought it should be destroyed, as you do, unless you're a biologist or just don't like destroying rare, possibly prehistoric animals. (laughs) Right. Now, it was this story that really caught the public's attention and launched the Loch Ness Monster craze. In December, the British tabloid The Daily Sketch interviewed Mr. Spicer, which brought the story to a national audience. Yeah, under the headline Loch Ness Monster or Loch Ness Horror, 
seen on land, and that's a title that's bound to grab attention. Not only does it tell you that there's a horror at Loch Ness, it tells you that it's been seen on land, and horrors are horrific enough on their own, but horrors that come on land are even more horrific than that, so no wonder people took notice. The Spicers also were interviewed by Royal Navy Lieutenant Commander Rupert Gould for his book, the Loch Ness Monster and Others. This was the first book on the monster, and it came out in 1934. Based on his interview with the Spicers, Gould summarized their encounter this way. They had passed through Doris and were on their way towards Foyers. He's not certain whether they had passed Whitefield. When, as the car was climbing a slight rise, an extraordinary-looking creature crossed the road ahead of them from left to right in a series of jerks. When on the road, it took up practically the whole width of it. He saw no definite head, but this was across the road before he had time to take the whole thing in properly. It was only in sight for a few seconds. The creature was of a loathsome-looking grayish color, like a dirty elephant or a rhinoceros. It had a very long and thin neck, which undulated up and down, and was contorted into a series of half-hoops. The body was much thicker and moved across the road, as already stated, in a series of jerks. He saw no indications of any legs or of a tail, but in front of the body, where this sloped down to the neck, he saw something flopping up and down, which on reflection he thought might have been the end of a long tail swung round to the far side of the body. The latter stood some four to five feet above the ground. The hole looked like a huge snail with a long neck. Gould also included in his book an artist's impression based on what the Spicers reported. The sketch didn't include a head because they didn't see one clearly, or at least that's what they told Gould. Um, it could have been the head could have been already hidden by trees or bushes at the side of the road. They did see a long undulating neck, and there is no tail or feet in the drawing since they didn't see any, though the feet could have been hidden by the fact that they were uh, approaching the monster coming up a hill and the legs could have been or the feet could have been beneath the curve of the hill. The sketch also contains a feature they noted at the mid-body of the creature, which could have been the end of the tail, being held forward and peeking out from the far side of the body. Later, another author named Constance White included a reverse angle sketch in her book, More Than a Legend. This sketch makes it clear how the monster may have held its tail forward so that it peeked out around the front of the body. But, as Gould says, the image he drew from the Spicer account does look rather like a huge snail with a long neck, or at least a big slug or something. In November 1933, we got our first picture of the monster. So who took it, and what does it reveal? It was taken by a man named Hugh Gray, and it doesn't reveal very much. Unfortunately, the picture is quite blurry, and it's not clear what the object in the lake is. Despite the blurriness, the object does kind of look like the same object as in the headless snail drawing that Gould produced, though there are other ideas about what it is which we'll cover in the reason perspective next episode. Just a couple of months later, in January of 1934, a witness got a clearer view of the creature. Wikipedia explains, On 5 January 1934, a motorcyclist, Arthur Grant, claimed to have nearly hit the creature while approaching Abriachan, near the northeastern end of the loch, at about 1 a.m. on a moonlit night. According to Grant, 
It had a small head attached to a long neck. The creature saw him and crossed the road back to the loch. Grant, a veterinary student, described it as a cross between a seal and a plesiosaur, but said he dismounted and followed it to the loch, but saw only ripples. And when he was interviewed by Commander Gould for his book, The Loch Ness Monster and Others, Grant himself, the witness, drew his own sketch of the monster. Grant had described the monster as looking like a cross between a seal and a plesiosaur, and the picture he drew does indeed look quite a bit like a plesiosaur. Now, before we continue our tale of the Loch Ness Monster, I want to take a moment to thank our patrons who make this show possible, including Rodney B., Evan S., Marika D., Father Daryl M., and Matt M. Their generous donations at sqpn.com slash give make it possible for us to continue Jimmy Aiken's Mysterious World and all the shows at StarQuest. And you can join them by visiting sqpn.com slash give. Jimmy Aiken's Mysterious World is also brought to you by Fearvento Law PLLC, now assisting clients with expungements and set-asides of Michigan convictions. To learn more, call 231-202-3321 or go to fearventolaw.com, F-I-O-R-V-E-N-T-O-Law.com. And by Deliver Contacts, offering honest pricing and reliable service for all your contact lens needs. See the difference at DeliverContacts.com. Now, Jimmy, people may have heard of plesiosaurs and think of them as kind of dinosaurs, but is that actually the case? No, technically, plesiosaurs aren't dinosaurs, because to be a dinosaur, you have to have a certain kind of hip joint so that your legs extend directly beneath your body. That's why birds are dinosaurs, because their legs extend below their bodies. And it's why crocodiles and alligators aren't dinosaurs, because their legs are mounted on the sides of their bodies. Plesiosaurs have side-mounted flippers, so they did live at the time of the dinosaurs, but they weren't actually dinosaurs. Instead, they'd be classified as marine reptiles, meaning reptiles that live in the water. Also, plesiosaurs weren't a single species. There were actually a bunch of plesiosaur species that are grouped together in a biological order known as plesiosauria. And how big were plesiosaurs? It depended on the species, but the general range for adults was between 5 feet long and 50 feet long. Different species also had different body proportions, with some having short necks and some having longer necks, uh, and their tails also varied in length. And what do they eat? Were they herbivores, carnivores, or omnivores? I can't speak for every species. Uh, For example, there's been a proposal that one species may have been a suspension feeder, meaning that it would suck in plankton from the water like blue whales do. But based on the teeth and the size and the uh, the way their eyes are mounted, they face forward, it looks like they generally were carnivores of the hunting type. Uh, They either chased or ambushed their prey. In fact, some species were big and powerful enough to be apex predators in their environment, though some also got preyed upon, as illustrated by the fact we found a plesiosaur fin with a shark bite in it. There's also one other thing we know that plesiosaurs ate, which was rocks. This is because we found plesiosaur skeletons with what are called gastroliths. In Greek, gaster means belly or stomach, and lithos means stone. So gastroliths are rocks that animals swallow and keep in their stomachs. And 
Plesiosaurs ate a bunch of rocks. We found one specimen that had 253 of them in its gizzard. A gizzard is a muscular part of a stomach where some creatures, such as birds, keep their gastroliths and use them to grind up, grind up food. So gastroliths serve as a kind of second internal set of teeth. Originally, it was thought that plesiosaurs might have swallowed stones to affect their buoyancy so they could eat them to help them sink and then vomit them up to help them rise in the water. But Studies of how much the stones weighed compared to how much the plesiosaur weighed indicate this wasn't the case. There weren't enough stones to help much with buoyancy. So they were eating the stones to grind up food just like birds do. And they apparently were picky about what stones they ate. So a given plesiosaur would hunt around for the best attractive stones to swallow. Now, people know that terms like dinosaur means terrible lizard and Tyrannosaurus rex means tyrant lizard king. What does plesiosaur mean? In Greek, plesios means neighboring or nearby, and sauros means lizard. So a plesiosaur has a body shape that is near to that of a lizard. Like lizards, they have a tail, a central body, a head, and side-mounted arms and legs. In fact, it looks like plesiosaurs evolved from large lizards that originally lived on land. But then about 200 million years ago in the Triassic era, some of their ancestors started living in shallow water and began adapting to a marine environment. Some plesiosaurs even still had functional legs, but eventually they evolved into flippers. So they're actually a lot like seals, which evolved from mammals that lived on land. The descendants that stayed on land eventually became bears and weasels, whereas the ones that returned to the water eventually became seals and developed a body form similar to that of plesiosaurs with their legs turning into flippers. And that could explain why veterinary student Arthur Grant thought the Loch Ness Monster looked like a cross between a seal and a plesiosaur. The first photograph of Nessie was really blurry, and now we had an eyewitness sketch that looked more like a plesiosaur. Did we get a photograph that also looked that way? Yes, and it's the most famous picture of the monster, so we used it in today's episode artwork. It was published in the Daily Mail in April of 1934, and it was reportedly taken by a London gynecologist named Robert Wilson. However, he didn't want his name in the paper, and so it came to be called the surgeon's photograph. It does indeed show something that looks like a plesiosaur surfacing with a small head on top of a long curving neck and with part of the creature's back with a hump visible above the water. There also was a second surgeon's photo that appeared to show the monster diving or preparing to dive, but the quality wasn't as high, so it wasn't published and that photo received much less attention. There have been numerous other photos and videos of Nessie taken over the years. Are any as good as the first surgeon's photo? With few exceptions, not really. Most are very blurry or taken from extreme distance. And either way, you can't really make out what the object in the photo is. Sometimes it's just a bump of something floating in the lock. Um, Other photos appear to simply be conventional animals or logs. Um, Some are simply ripples caused by something moving in the water with no way to see what it is. And there are some obvious hoaxes. 
Uh, one of these was taken in 1977 by a man named Anthony Doc Shields. Shields is a magician and a psychic, and he claimed to summon the animal, getting it to surface and letting him take its picture. The picture does show a very plesiosaur-like head, and it's even in color. However, there aren't any visible ripples on the surface of the water around the neck, which would be implausible unless the creature were motionless for long enough to let the ripples dissipate, making the image look staged. It also just looks fake. All of these factors, coupled with the fact that Doc Shields is a magician, a profession that involves faking things, and that he claimed to have psychically summoned the creature, have led many people to conclude that his image is a crude fake. It's been dubbed the Loch Ness Muppet, and I can see why, so I don't think this photo has any value for us. There are, however, some photos from the 1970s that were seen as having scientific value. Tell us about those. Two were taken in 1972 when a scientific team was looking for the monster. Wikipedia explains. In 1972, a group of researchers from the Academy of Applied Science, led by Robert H. Rines, conducted a search for the monster involving sonar examination of the loch depths for unusual activity. Rines took precautions to avoid murky water with floating wood and peat. A submersible camera with a floodlight was deployed to record images below the surface. If Rhines detected anything on the sonar, he turned the light on and took pictures. So this was a serious effort to get scientific evidence of the monster. And in addition to getting uh, anomalous sonar readings, they also got two photographs of what looked like diamond-shaped flippers belonging to some creature in the loch. The flippers are clearly attached to what looks like the body of a creature. They do look real, and the flippers are in different positions, indicating flexibility and motion. In 1975, Rhines and his associates were doing another survey of the loch, and they got a picture that seemed to show the head, the neck, and the front flippers of a creature, and it looked quite a bit like a plesiosaur coming into frame. This made news all over the world, and I remember seeing this photo together with the flipper photos in Time magazine as a kid here in America, and the photos were mesmerizing. And they also led to something rare in the history of science. What was that? The monster got a scientific name, and that is something rare, because normally, in order to give a creature a scientific name, you need a physical specimen of the creature, or what's known as a voucher specimen. But in 1975, a problem arose. The UK Parliament had just passed a law known as the Conservation of Wild Creatures and Wild Plants Act. And according to this law, in order for wild animals to receive legal protection, they needed to have both a scientific and a common name. Nessie, the Loch Ness Monster, obviously had a common name, but it didn't have a scientific name, so now it wasn't legally protected and people could hunt and kill the creatures, which would be devastating since only a small breeding population of them could live in Loch Ness. How do they go about getting a scientific name for the creature if they didn't have a voucher specimen? Robert Rines, the guy who took the photos, and his associate, Sir Peter Scott, wrote an article for Nature, which is one of the most prestigious scientific journals. I mean, Nature is extremely prestigious, and everybody wanted to get published in it. And in the article, they argued that an exception should be made for Nessie. 
they pointed out that exceptions have been made before, like if a creature could be scientifically described and distinguished from other creatures, such as from an illustration or photograph, and they had photographs. So they wrote, Description from an illustration is permitted by the International Code of Zoological Nomenclature, and the procedure seems justified by the urgency of comprehensive conservation measures. In 1817, Raffet Nesk named the Massachusetts Bay Sea Serpent Megophius monstrosus. In 1892, Udemans changed the name to Megophius megophius, and in 1958, Hulvemans proposed Megalotaria longicollis for the animals sighted in the surrounding seas. So there had been exceptions, and since Rhines and Scott had photos, they thought they could scientifically describe the creature well enough to distinguish it from other animals. They thus proposed a name for it, Nesiteris rhombopteryx. And in nature, they explained what the name means. The generic name Nesiteris, a neuter noun, is a composite word combining the name of the loch, that is Ness, with the Greek word teras which was used from Homer onwards to mean a marvel or wonder, and in a concrete sense for a range of monsters which aroused awe, amazement, and often fear. The specific name, Rhombopteryx, is a combination of the Greek rhombos, a diamond or lozenge shape, and the Greek terex, meaning a fin or wing. Thus the species is the nest monster with diamond fin. So, Nesiteras rhombopteryx means nest monster with diamond fin, and now that Nessie had a scientific name, we've arrived at a good point to begin evaluating the evidence regarding the creature, which is what we'll do next week. All right, and while folks wait for that analysis, what further resources can we offer them? We'll have a link to Loxton and Prothero's book, Abominable Science, The Origins of the Yeti, Nessie, and Other Famous Cryptids, Darren Nash's book, Hunting Monsters, Richard Freeman's book, Adventures in Cryptozoology, Volume 1, also Richard Freeman's book, In Search of Real Monsters, which is Adventures in Cryptozoology, Volume 2, also information on plesiosaurs, helicanth, Ryan's and Scott's Nature article, Naming the Monster, also lock-nest.com, the Loch Ness Live webcam, and the official Loch Ness Monster Sightings Registry. All right. So that's it from us this time. We would love to hear before we get to uh, Jimmy's bottom line next week. What are your theories about the Loch Ness Monster? You can let us know by visiting sqpn.com or the Jimmy Akins Mysterious World Facebook page by sending us an email to mysterious at sqpn.com, sending a tweet to at mys underscore world in the StarQuest Discord community at sqpn.com slash discord or by calling our mysterious feedback line at 619-738-4515. That's 619-738-4515. And I want to say a special word of thanks to Oasis Studio 7 for the video and animation work on this episode. You can check out their work by going to youtube.com slash Jimmy Aiken, where we have Mysterious World episodes in video form for you. And while you're there, I am trying to grow my channel. And I'd really appreciate it if you would subscribe and hit the bell notification so that you always get a notification whenever I have a new video, whether it's Mysterious World or something else. So, Jimmy, what are we going to be talking about next time? Next week, we'll take a look at the evidence 
provided by the witnesses and the photographs that we covered this time, as well as taking a look at new scientific findings, such as from DNA studies, and see what they say about what may be living in Loch Ness. Excellent. Folks, be sure to share the podcast with your friends. Write a review in Apple Podcasts or wherever you get your podcasts from to help us grow our community and reach more listeners. You'll find links to Jimmy's resources from our discussion on our show notes at mysterious.fm slash 236. And remember, to help us continue to produce the podcast, please visit sqpn.com slash give. Jimmy Aiken's Mysterious World is also brought to you in part through the generous support of Aaron Ferguson Electric and Automation at aaronv.com, A-A-R-O-N-V.com, making connections for life for your automation and smart home needs in North and Central Florida. And by Catechism Class, a dynamic weekly podcast journey through the Catechism of the Catholic Church by Greg and Jennifer Willits. It's the best book club, coffee talk, and faith study group all rolled into one. Find it in any podcast directory. Until next time, Jimmy Aiken, thank you for exploring with us our mysterious world. Thanks, Dom. And once again, I'm Dom Bettinelli. Thank you for listening to Jimmy Aiken's Mysterious World on StarQuest. Howdy, folks. This is Jimmy Aiken with a special message as we approach the Christmas season. This past year, the StarQuest Network has continued to expand our mission of exploring the intersection of faith and pop culture through our many entertaining and informative programs. Here on Mysterious World, we've continued to expand our video audience on YouTube with shows that provide extra content and context for our discussion of the mysteries, as well as more interviews with experts and bonus content that goes beyond our weekly episodes. We want to continue improving the show and keep reaching even more people while providing you with the fascinating mysteries that you enjoy every week. That's why it's very important that we hear from you this Advent and Christmas, the time when nonprofits receive most of their support for the year. If you're already a supporter of StarQuest, we thank you and ask you to prayerfully consider increasing your support at this time. If you're not yet a supporter, please become one now. Every gift counts. Could you give $15 a month or even just $10 a month? Whatever level of support you can offer, please show your support for StarQuest this Christmas. And remember that your gifts are tax deductible. Just go to sqpn.com give. That's sqpn.com give. May God bless you this Advent, and may you have a blessed Christmas season. Thank you.